thank you for joining us for this podcast from Abundant Life. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this word. Now, here's Pastor Scott. I have to listen intently because I am going to read eight verses of scripture tonight, which is kind of a lengthy passage for us on a Wednesday night Bible study. But I believe that if you will listen, God has something that he wants to say to us. And this is our book of the month. And I hope that you will read through these seven chapters sometime this month. You don't have to read all of it. You might want to read it more than once. But please try to read through this. And as we talk about it tonight, maybe God will make some sense out of it for you and uh, give you some renewed enthusiasm to be one of those very few people who actually read the Bible every day. And I hope that you will put yourself in that crowd. If you feed your body every day, you need to be doing something to feed your inner body, your inner man, your inner woman every day. Listen to what the Bible says in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, where I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Listen to verse 6, the last verse I'm going to read before we pray. Or verse 8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want to talk to you tonight from a Bible study titled, What Does God Require? Say require. Pray with me. God, thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the sunshine and the rain. I thank you for allowing us to be in your church tonight, God. And I pray that you would control every aspect of this service. I pray that you would anoint my mouth and my mind. God, let me say the things that you would have me to say. God, I pray that as we look to your word tonight, you would cause it to make sense by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What does God require? I want us to understand that there are requirements that God has for his people. Too many people I know, I hear too many times people saying, when is God going to do X, Y, or Z for me? When is God going to show up? When is God going to bring this, bring that, bring the other thing? When is God going to step in and make something happen? And I've told you so many times because I want you to get it that if God never did one other thing, he already did everything that was necessary at Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross to purchase our redemption, and not just ours, but for everyone who would be willing to place faith in him, he said this very profound phrase, it is finished. 
And I've told you, God doesn't waste words and he doesn't add words. Every word that God speaks is purposeful. Every word that God speaks is meant to be there. So much so that he said about the writing of his book that if you add one word to this book that he didn't want in it, he would add to you every single plague that's in this book. And if you took one word out of this book that he didn't want taken out of this book, he would take your name out of his book of eternal life. God is very serious about the words that he speaks. And when Jesus said, it is finished, what he was saying is, I don't have to do anything else. I can sit back on the right hand of God now because everything that needs to be done has been done. We have been blessed, the Bible says, with all spiritual blessings. The Bible says that we are already, in God's eternal perspective, seated in the heavenlies. We've already won the race if we're on the Lord's team and we're just waiting for the celebration. I can remember uh, the first time that Seth ever understood when I was teaching about the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's a celebration time for those who belong to Christ and he's like, oh, God's throwing me a party. Yes, God is throwing us a party in heaven, but he doesn't have to do anything between now and the time he takes us to heaven, but there is a lot of stuff for us to do. Too many people are sitting back waiting. And the New Age message has not just crept into the church. It's taken over the church. The, the, the bad theology of mainline denominations and Christian television has taken over the general consensus of what people believe about God in 2016. So much so when you use Bible words, when someone uses Bible words now like purpose, like divine, uh, like destiny, People usually put the focus on their own life and not on God. They put the focus on, I have purpose. I have destiny. I have the divine nature in me. And everything becomes about the person and not about God. Our relationship with God should not be to bring focus, joy, or excitement to us. Our relationship to God should be about making him famous. I hear so many people say, well, I know God is going to do X, Y, and Z because I've got, I've got a destiny on my life. I hear people say that about their kids. My child is just so anointed. She just has purpose in her life. Listen, the purpose is what God's purpose has. We're either along for the ride, along for the obedience, or along for the disobedience. But I hope that you make your life more about God than what God's plan for you is. It's more about what God's plan is than it is about how we are involved in it. I've seen people write books about America's role in the end times. Listen, America has no role in the end times, according to God's word. We're, we're not prophetic. We're not, we're not the, we're not the uh, modern-day Israelites. I've seen all this stuff because people somehow want to confuse the message of this book to make them bigger. But anytime you make anything bigger, by contrast, you make God smaller. So we've got to make sure that we've got our focus on the right lean of theology that says this is about God it's not about me there was a Christian song we used to sing in church a long time ago back when we were in the junior high school and part of it I don't remember the whole song but it says not to us but to thy name be the glory and I hope that's your mindset I hope that's your approach to scripture I hope that's your approach to life because God has requirements on us and if we really want to have all that God has for us to have we're going to have to step into these requirements. We're going to have to make sure that we are putting ourselves 
in direct line of where God wants us to be. I do believe God wants to bless you. I do believe God wants to prosper you. I believe God wants to make you healthy. I believe God wants to give you joy because every good father wants to bless his children and see his children have those things. But I can promise you this, in the natural, as a human father, in the supernatural, as I've studied, read, and understand the Bible, the father's main objective, what the father wants more than anything is obedience without drama. And God has expectation on his children, just like every father should have expectation on their children. And here we see in chapter 6 is a metaphor of a courtroom scene. We see a courtroom drama being played out where God has a back and forth talk as if he was in a courtroom where God is the prosecutor stating his case in verses 1 through 5. And then in, Israel, then in verses 6 and 7, Israel replies to what God has been accusing them of. And they make their rebuttal. And then God comes back in verse 8 and he tells them some more stuff. Let me give you some quick background, though, before we go into the study of these few verses. Micah, and I might have told you this at some point in this month already, but so you know the backdrop. Micah was a contemporary prophet to Hosea and Isaiah. He didn't get a, a, I guess he got a uh in his name, but Hosea and Isaiah were on the scene at the same time Micah was on the scene, and they were all prophets. And Hosea was prophesying to the northern tribes of Israel. Isaiah was prophesying to the people of Jerusalem. Guess who Micah was prophesying to? Common folk in Judah. Commoners, normal people. He wasn't prophesying. Isaiah was mostly in the court at Jerusalem, talking to the power. He was the guy who was speaking truth to power. And Hosea was going all over the northern tribes, and he was preaching to them. He was prophesying to them. Micah here is talking to the common people of Judah. And I want you to try to figure out what Micah's message was, and then what Isaiah's message was, and then what Hosea's message was. Lots of different prophets in the Bible, 16 specifically. Uh, well, no, let me, let me think. Um, 17 specifically. Um, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. What's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? Anybody know? It's Wednesday night Bible study. The length of the book. Almost the universal answer that you will get. But how about this? Hosea and Zechariah are just as long as Daniel. So why is Daniel a major prophet, but the others are minor prophets? That is right. It is typically the length of the book, but more specifically, it's the breadth of the audience. The minor prophets were typically a shorter book, not always, typically a shorter book, and they spoke to a smaller group of people. Uh, let me just read them to you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, and Daniel are what theologians call the major prophets. And if you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, that's real major. That's a lot of the Bible right there. Ezekiel, same way. Uh, Daniel's smaller book. Uh, but the minor prophets, are they're also called the other 12 in, in some commentaries. But Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the, are the minor prophets. Everybody will typically tell you that it's based on how big the book is, 
but given the examples I've told you, it's not just the size of the book, but it is how wide a focus the audience was. It doesn't mean that they're any less inspired or less valuable. Um, it's just a matter of how much revelation was given and to how many people. So out of all these different people, whether they be minor prophets or major prophets, I want to give you the answer ahead and then ask you to see if you are listening at all. They all had the same message. They all had the same message. Okay, because they were all prophets, whether they were major prophets or whether they were minor prophets. And if you listen to prophecy in 2012 on Christian television, Christian radio, go to churches around the city, go, go to churches who, who will promote, our church is awesome, we're, 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 we, we believe in prophecy, and we, 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 all, we flow in the gift of prophecy. And I already told you all, if anybody says there's somebody over here with a hurt back and there's somebody over here that has uh, been wounded by a man, uh, that's not prophecy, that's con artistry. But a lot of churches will, will call prophecy uh, where they want to give a word to somebody and, and they'll come up and they'll just have somebody like Deacon West have him stand up and say, the Spirit of the Lord has told me that God has seen your struggle and that God has watched you low these years and your prayers have been received by the Lord and your breakthrough, always your breakthrough is coming, your miracle is around the corner, all the prophecy in America today always says that. And let me tell you, that's not what the prophets in the Bible said. I told you all their message was the same. And you know what their message was? You're wrong and judgment is coming. That's prophecy. You're wrong and judgment is coming. You've done wrong and judgment is coming. So if you really want to prophesy to somebody... You want to act like you got some magic eight ball and you want to speak a word to somebody? You could always be right by walking up to them and saying, you have disobeyed God and judgment is coming. Because that's the message of every prophet. That and that alone. You've disobeyed God and judgment is coming. Now the cool thing is God can delay his judgment or stay his judgment. God can not judge you. I heard a preacher preach one time, God don't have no crop failure. And that's bad English, bad grammar, uh, and it's also bad theology. What he was saying is, if you've done wrong, if you've sown good seeds, good, good stuff's going to come your way. But if you've sown bad seeds, bad stuff's going to come your way. I left that meeting that night thinking, I thank God for crop failures in my life, and anybody in here who truly saved understands what I'm talking about. We've done wrong stuff that... We ask God to forgive us of, and he wiped the slate clean and let us start over. See, that's the goal of prophecy. Not so you can leave saying, Prophet Bobo is awesome. He, he, just, he, he was reading my mail. He just was speaking right to me. And nobody in the world, no way he could have known that but God. Let me tell you what I know that about everybody. You have disobeyed God, and judgment is coming. That's prophecy. Now, is that real? Anybody in this room feel like that doesn't apply to them? You need medication. Because the Bible says all have sinned. And that the wages of sin is death. Prophecy, Old Testament, New Testament, between Testament and after Testament is always going to be the same because God never changes. Prophecy is you've disobeyed God and judgment is coming. That was always their message. 
So that's Micah's message. It's the same message Isaiah had. It's the same message Jeremiah had. It's the same message every real prophet has today. It's not about predicting your future, and it's not about telling you that you're about to be blessed. Real prophecy actually go in the other way. Real prophecy will tell you you're about to get slapped if you don't straighten up because that's what prophecy is, uh, biblical prophecy. Let's look at this courtroom scene that's being played out in chapter 6. I, I love the dramatic context that God shapes this truth in, a courtroom scene where he indicts Israel and then they reply and then he comes back at them again just like you would see on, on some type of legal TV show. But in verse 1 of Micah 6, God, the Bible says, listen to what the Lord is saying. And then he stands up like a prosecutor would and he begins to make his case and says, stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. Okay, can you see the legal thing going on? I want you to see the backdrop of a courtroom scene that God is painting this picture around. In verse 2, he says, now mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. You see the prosecutor style? He's stating his case. He's bringing charges. God is bringing charges against Israel. The word says in verse 2, he has a case to state against his people. Who's he stating his case against? His people, Israel. And that's why I've told you, stop worrying about what the pornographer's doing. Stop worrying about what the drug dealer's doing and look in the mirror. Check one, two. Is this microphone on? Start looking in the mirror because you are the only person you will ever have to answer to God for. And that's why the Bible says in the New Testament not to desire to be a teacher over lots of people. See, you will only have to answer to God for you. But those who willingly put themselves in the pathway between people and God as a teacher will have to answer for themselves and for how they taught God's people. So you ought to like where your seat is more than you like where my seat is. If people rightly understood this truth, so many people wouldn't want to start their own church or, or go out and become a great teacher of note because the more you speak, the more you're held accountable for. But God is working this courtroom scene, and his case is not against the unsaved. His case is not against the heathen. His case is against his own people. Do you, it's a rhetorical question, do you expect more out of your children than you do out of your neighbor's child? I sure hope you do. Do you expect more out of your older children than you do out of your younger children? I certainly hope that you do. This is reasonable. This is how parenting goes down. And God has a requirement from his people. God has an expectation on his children. And he's setting this case and he's bringing these charges. In verse 3, he said, oh, my people, what have I done to you? All right, now he's setting them up because they've been in rebellion. And here is the cycle. See, life is cyclical, and all through the Old Testament, there was this cycle between God and Israel. God would reveal himself to Israel, and they would get all excited. Then they would get over here, and then they would sin. And then they would get over here, and God would warn them to stop sinning. 
Then the clock would get almost back up to 12, and judgment would fall. Then at 11.30, repentance would happen, and it would be back up to the top with blessing again. So there's this revelation of blessing, then there's this sin, then there's this warning, then there's judgment, then there's repentance, and then there's blessing, and then there's a cycle of sin, judgment, warning, repentance, blessing, sin, judgment, warning, repentance, blessing, sin, judgment, warning, repentance, blessing. And this is the cycle that they went through then and that we go through now. God wants to bless us, and God wants us to short-circuit this cycle. You don't have to go through this cycle all the time. You can stay in any part of that circle that I just drew for you. You can stay in the blessing part, or you can stay in the sinning part. You can stay in the judgment part, or you can stay in the repentance. Well, you can't stay in the repentance part because if you repent long enough, you get back to the blessing part. But they're in this cycle. Listen, here's what God tells them he did. He, he states that he's done several things for them. He tells them that he rescued them from Egypt. He gave them great leadership. He reversed the intended curse of Balaam. He brought his people into the promised land. He did all this good stuff for them. That's why he sets them up in verse 3 and says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? And then after those two questions, I wish we had this on the screen so you could see it. He gives a two-word sentence with an exclamation point. Answer me. That sounds like something good a father would say to a child. Answer me. Why are you acting ignorant? Why are you doing wrong? Why are you messing up? Why, after all the good things I've done for you, why are you still doing this? Answer me. And this is what God is saying in verse 3. He goes on in verse 4 to list all those blessings I just told you about. He says, for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? If you don't live your life remembering all that God has done for you, you certainly will fall into the wrong part of the circle. If you don't spend every day of your life counting your blessings, remembering every good thing God has done for you, you will fall into the wrong cycle, the wrong part of this cycle that I showed you. You will fall away from all that God has good for you. That's why the Hebrews would sit their children down and tell them all the time, we believe in the God who brought us out. We believe in the God who brought us over. We believe in the God who rescued our ancestors. God did great things for us, and you need to be constantly reminding yourself it was God who saved you and not yourself. If you don't have a testimony that you can call out recently, you need to go back to your salvation and let that be enough for you. If you don't feel like God's done something miraculous for you in the last three days, you need to go back to your salvation and realize he did save me, and you shouldn't be over that yet. So God knows that the process of memory to his children instills love and repentance because the Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord that makes us repent. It's not the fear of God that should make you want to serve him. It's not the, the fear of hell or punishment that should make you want to be nice to the people that love you. When you think about how good God has been to you, you ought to want to freely give him your money. When you think about how good God has been to you, you ought to freely want to give him your time. When you think about how good God has been to you, you ought to want to turn the TV off every now and then and just listen to his word or get on your knees and talk to him. So he talking to rebellious children, which we all are at times, 
he's reminding them of all these good things that he's done for them because do you realize if it had not been for the Lord who was on your side, you would be in worse shape right now than you are? No matter how bad, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult your struggle may be, have been, or get, if you know that God is on your side, you're in a better position than if he wasn't. So he's reminding them about all this stuff. In verse 6, after he tells them about, oh, at the end of verse 5, he says, Remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. Listen, because I'm going to give you a test. God said, I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What was he wanting to teach them about? When you realize how faithful God is, it'll change your whole world. When you realize he didn't quit on you when he could have. When you realize how when you dropped the ball, he kept holding on. When you realize when you stumbled, he was still holding your hand. When you realize that his faithfulness is everlasting, then it will change your approach to him. And it should open your eyes and make you say, I need to straighten up. How could I not love a God who loves me this way? How could I not serve a God who never quits me? How could I not straighten up my act after every time I acted stupid, God still stuck with me? This is the message that all the, all the prophets reminded people over and over and over again. Jeremiah said, you went a whoring as as backsliders, but God is married to the backslider. Hosea said, I, God has continued to pour out his loving kindness and reveal his covenant of faithfulness to you. This ought to do something to the mind of the true Christian when you realize he's just too faithful to me for me to quit on him. Because there's going to be that moment of indecision in your life. There's going to be that moment of, do I want to continue on this grind or not? There's going to be that moment of testing and temptation and bewilderment that says, I've been doing all this for God for a long time. Where's the payoff? Listen, realize, if you realize the payoff is in the next life, you won't really worry about this life too much. I told you New Age theology has corrupted the church. New Age theology has made everybody in the church listening to these wrong messages think that it's about us. It's about us getting ours. It's about our destiny, our, 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 our purpose, our, our divine power and everything God wants to do for us. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not Christianity. It's not about what we're going to get in this life. If you read the Bible, do, do you see what the people that follow God got in the Bible? Well, let's start with Jesus. What did he get? They get crucifixion. What did the apostles get? They, they got the same. What did the prophets get? They got the same too. Okay, so if you look at what they got in this life, you could say, mm, that's not a good trade-off. But guess what they get? Eternity in heaven with God. Now, if that gets your mindset, if you're like, I don't care what happens to me in this life. Remember the three Hebrew boys? What did they tell the king? You're going to throw us in this fire? So what? You're going to kill us? So what? God is able to deliver us from this fire, or he'll deliver us in this fire. They said, God, you're not in control, king. They, they said, we're not careful to answer you concerning this matter. We ain't scared of you. You're nobody to us. God, you, throw us, you think you got power to throw us in this fire? God can stop you from throwing us in this fire if he wants to. Or if you put us in this fire and we die, God's going to take us to heaven. So we either get delivered in the fire or through the fire, they said, but be it known either way, we're not studying you, and we're not afraid of you, and we're not answering to you, and we're not changing what we believe about God. 
they had an eternal perspective. They had a perspective that my blessing doesn't have to come today. That, that, that's why people of old were able to say, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Whatever come my way, I'll still follow him because I'm not looking for my blessing on this side of eternity. If my blessing comes on this side of eternity, I praise him for it. But, but what, what if I just get the ability and the opportunity to serve him? What if I just get struggling, hardship, and testimony? That's okay, too, if it ends up in heaven. you got to have an eternal perspective. And God is reminding these people of all the good things that he has done for them. And he says, I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. In verse 5 of Micah chapter 6. Now, if God did everything he could, do you reckon that's enough? Now, if you do everything you can, if I do everything I can, If I came over to your house and I said, I'm going to clean your house from top to bottom, you probably better hire somebody else. But if I did that and I stayed there all week long, 10 hours a day, seven days in a row, and I left and I said, I've done everything I can to give you the cleanest house on the planet. Do you think that you might be able to go behind me and find one or two 5,700 things that I missed? Yes, you would. And same way if you came and did mine. Because everything I can do or everything you can do is still short of perfection. But when God says, I've done everything I could do to teach you about my faithfulness. Listen, here's the point. If anybody doesn't understand God's faithfulness, it ain't God's fault. That's like a teacher saying, I've done everything I can to prepare your students for the FCAT. Well, they probably haven't, but what they're saying is, if you fail this, it ain't on me, because I did everything I could to teach your child properly in preparation for this test. Well, they're human. They, they have limitations. God said, I did everything I could, not to bless you, not to prosper you, not to empower you, but to teach you about my faithfulness. You need to understand, what, based on what I've said, what do you think God wants to be a big area of concentration for us? His what? His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Think about his faithfulness. Rejoice in his faithfulness. Thank him for his faithfulness because that's what he's done everything he could to teach his children about. So in verse 6, Israel replies. God keeps playing out this courtroom scene and does a dramatic presentation of what Israel might say in response to the prosecutor. Well, what can we bring to the Lord? Question mark. They're like, okay, you're upset with us. You're saying that you've done a lot of good things to us. You've asked us, why are we tired of you? You've asked us why we're rebelling. Well, what can we bring to the Lord? Question mark. Then they say, what kind of offerings should we give him? Question mark. Then they say, should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? They're asking the prosecutor, all right. See, notice they didn't say we're not guilty. So that's what people try to do now, though. They didn't pass the buck. People been doing that since Adam. This generation loves to avoid personal responsibility. People love to pass it off on to somebody else. They didn't try to pass the buck here. They're looking for, okay, what do we have to do to get out of this hole? That's good questioning right there. If the judge tells you you're wrong and you're guilty and he allows you to speak, If mom or dad say you're in trouble and discipline is coming, do you have anything to say for yourself? 
you'd be wise to say, is there any way I can make up for this before the axe falls? What can I do to get myself out of this hole? What can I do to right the wrong that I've done? Then they get a little dramatic, overly so, in verse 7. and say, should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Dramatic questions, but questions nonetheless. Now, what if God said, you have to send your firstborn child to Afghanistan to go be raised over there and you can never speak to them again? What if that's how God said you earned salvation? You realize a lot of people wouldn't do it? They'd be like, I can't do it. I, can't, I, can't, I just can't send my child over to Afghanistan. Uh, you ought to be thankful God didn't say to us what he said to Abraham. You ought to be thankful because God makes the rules. It's his world, and he gets to make the rules. And if God would have said, you got to sacrifice your firstborn child to go to heaven when you die, uh, Jake's out. I'm, I'm not going to hell for eternity over how much I love somebody on this earth. That doesn't mean I don't love my child. That just means I understand God. I understand eternity. And ain't no backing up, and it's forever. God could have said that, but he didn't. These people are getting a little mouthy here in their rebuttal to the prosecutor, and they're going to the extreme. And I'm thankful that God did not require extremist, crazy behavior for us to get to him. Should we offer him 10,000 rivers of olive oil? God didn't say, give me 90%, live off 10, but he did say, give me the 10% up front because it's holy to me. And he did say, if you don't pay the 10%, he will curse your money. He did say, if you take home your money and put it in a bag, slash bank, savings account, investment, top drawer, bottom drawer, underwear drawer, he will put a hole in that, and he will blow on it and cause it to go away. God did not make following him that difficult for us he made it difficult on christ jesus paid all of the penalty for our sin but there still is requirement on us for blessing not to get into heaven but to be blessed by the father in this life so god's already told them i got a case against y'all they're like well what do we got to do you want us to give up our firstborn you want us to give you all our money you want us to go give you everything we got and in verse 8, he said, no, come. That ought to make people thankful that he said no. He said, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, colon. I wish we had this on the screen. He said, no, you don't have to do those ridiculous things that you just said, but there is some things that God has required from you. And he says, I've already told you these things. From the beginning, God's been, and then he tells them what he already told them in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, God began to lay down the laws and the truth and the process of following him. And it's never changed, and it's never going to change. He puts before us a choice, a blessing or a curse. A blessing if we do what he tells us to do, and a curse if we, it's the same as any good parent. You tell, you, your child says, what time do you need to be home, huh? 11 o'clock. If they come home at 1040, you okay with that? They come home at 11.40, you okay with that? No. When, when they ask you what they can do and you set the parameters, you without saying it have offered them a choice. 
And you, without saying it, have offered them, at least in your mind, a blessing or a curse. Because if they come home, they get to sleep there. They come home late. Listen, they come home late and they're over 18 years old. Change the lock. Yeah, y'all don't want to agree with that. I change, I'll lock the door. I might even be kind enough to throw a pillow out on the, on the front yard. But I'm, well, I don't even know if I'm kidding. But you offer them a blessing or a curse when you give them a choice to do right or wrong. That's what God's been saying to his people from the beginning. So he turns around in verse 8 and says, no, I'm not asking you to give me 10,000 rivers of olive oil. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your firstborn children to me. I'm not asking you to give me offerings day and night. Here is what the Lord requires of you. Now, does something God requires of us, does that sound optional to you or does that sound like a command? This is not optional. If you want blessing from God, this is not a um, this isn't a request. This is a requirement. This isn't optional. This is a command. This isn't something to take or leave. This is something to take or get in trouble for not taking. And he says three different things: to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the things God requires. Now, if God never changes and He doesn't. If God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is, if God's no respecter of persons, and he's not, if he treats his people then the same way he treats us now, would he still require of his children today what he required of his children then? Go like this. Yes, he would. And so what are the requirements he has of his children? Now, this has nothing to do with salvation. You're not a child of God until you get saved. See, everybody thinks, well, I'm, we're all children of God by birth. No, Jesus told people, you're not of God, you're of your father, the devil. So everybody's not a child of God just because they were born in America or just because they wave at you and smile at you. You're, you're not even a child of God until you get saved. And he said in verse 1, or he said in verse 2, that he's making this case against his people. All right, so... These are already saved people. This has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with everybody who claims the name of Christ. What, what does God require of me? And that ought to be in your mind. Do you realize if you work for somebody and you want to keep your job or maybe get promoted one day, maybe get a raise, maybe have the boss happy with you and not mad with you, you need to know what the boss expects out of you? If you employ people, you need to make sure they know what's expected. I had someone tell me one time, you shouldn't be mad at anybody that works for you that can't do what you haven't trained them to do. You got to let your people know what you expect out of them. And God is doing no less for us right here in verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. He's letting his people know what he expects, what he requires out of us. Number one thing, do what is right. Well, that doesn't sound that hard. Until you realize how often we mess that up. God wants us to do what is right. I'm going to tell you again, then I'm asked, and then we're going to have a test. God wants us to do what is right. What does God want us to do? That's enough preaching right there to live on for the rest of your life. That's why I think military people 
well, not all military people, because just because you're in the military doesn't mean you have a military mindset. Just because you have a military mindset doesn't mean you're going to do well in the military. But people who do well in the military typically do well in God's kingdom because God's kingdom is set up with order. God's kingdom is set up with rank and file. God's kingdom is set up with leadership, fellowship, and submission. God's kingdom is set up with obedience and blessing. And every leader in the military wants people to do what they're told to do. So when you come into the military, or I'll speak about the Army because that's the only branch of service I was in. When you come into the Army as an E1, E2, or E3, do you know how much detailed, specific, outstanding, excellent, mind-boggling, mind-boggling initiative-taking, do you know how much awesome stuff is required of you? None. You know how much they expect out of E1s in the Army? Next to nothing. The one thing they expect is do what you're told to do. Don't think. Do what you're told to do. You're not smart enough to think yet. We haven't trained you to think yet. You haven't been taught how to think yet. It's just like your kid. Your kid might, you might let them play with the keys to your car, but they're not ready to drive it at five years old. And when you come fresh into the military, the, your leaders, they just, when you come into the Army, all they want you to do is just do what you're told. And if you can do what you're told in the Army. I went in the Army, E1. Some people go in E2. Some people even go in E3. I went in the Army, E1. They told me, do what you're told. Eight and a half weeks basic training. I did everything I was told. I was an honor graduate in my basic training class, was meritoriously promoted to E2 in basic training. Went to my advanced individual training to learn how to be a chaplain's assistant. Out of all the people, 78 people, I was this distinguished honor graduate in my company. The only one. I was meritoriously promoted to E3 in my advanced individual training class and given a certificate as the distinguished honor graduate. You know why? Because I knew how to do what I was told. That's all I had to do, just do what I was told. I didn't know anything about the Army. I didn't know anything about living in New Jersey. I didn't know anything about being a chaplain's assistant. I didn't know anything about military customs and bearings. I didn't know that you, you had to adjust your uniform based on the requirements in AR 670-1. I didn't know all these different things, but I knew how to do what I was told. They said, this is what we, we want you to do. Now, go do it. This is how leadership is passed on. And God says, I require you to do right. Now, here's the question. I want you to figure it out in your own mind. Are you doing what's right? I don't think you need somebody to tell you what's right. The Bible says that when you get saved, God puts a knower on the inside of you. See, there's this con current controversy that did not exist prior to 1900. There was no controversy about when Christians received the Holy Spirit prior to 1900. And then people started letting experience and individualism take higher precedent than the written word of God. The Bible has always said that if you don't have God's spirit, you're none of his. That God gives you the down payment of your inheritance at the moment you get saved, which is his spirit living inside of you. So when you get saved, God puts his spirit in you. That's what Jesus told the disciples the Holy Ghost job would be. He said, I'm going to go away. They said, don't go away. We need you. He said, I have to go away. But God's going to send somebody who won't just be with you. He'll be inside you. 
And so when you get saved, God puts his spirit inside you. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you're truly saved and you do wrong, you get a warning bell in your head. Beep, beep, beep. Trouble, trouble, warning, Will danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. And you get this, you get this siren warning that says, uh, that's not right. Now, guess what happens if you don't pay attention to that? You don't hear it as much. Guess what happens if you just disregard it altogether for long periods of time? then you become like these people at Burger King and McDonald's that I just can't understand at all. I tell my kids all the time, how can that person stand right there with that fry noise going off? Beep, 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 beep. And I say it loud enough. They don't hear that fry buzzer going off? How can somebody tell me, how do they not hear that fry buzzer going off? Why? They got used to it. They've been standing with it going off for so long, they don't even study it. It's like living next to a train track. Go visit somebody living next to a train track. Watch them, how they act. I'm sitting there eating dinner. The train comes by, whole apartment starts shaking. You grab your plate and your drink. They're just sitting there cutting up their meat, eating like nothing's going on. Are we going to be okay? What? You don't feel the whole house shaking? Oh, that, 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 that train's just going by. Why is this visitor freaking out, but they're not freaking out? I grew up on the west side of Jacksonville. I lived in the Marietta White House area. In the White House area, there is what's called a touch-and-go touch airstrip, where these A7s would come, and they would fake land, just get all the wheels on the ground and take right back off again. So they're loud coming down and they're loud going back off. And do you know what everybody that lived in Marietta and White House did when they were on the phone? And one of those planes came over? They just waited. No, we didn't have cell phones then. There was no, did I lose you? Are you there? Can you hear me? Well, you have, that commercial wouldn't have made sense to kids in my generation because it was all hardline. It was all landline. But... You, you got to know that stop talking. They don't even have the phone to their ear anymore. They set that phone down, went and made a sandwich. Why? A7's flying over. It's loud. It's going to be loud. That's the sound of freedom. Oh, man, I, I, thought, I, I, I thought you hung up on me. No, I couldn't hear anything you were saying. Planes were going over. What planes? Well, come down to the west side. Do you realize there are people that live from here to my office of that touch-and-go strip? How do you think they like that? I'm going to tell you how they like it. It don't phase them at all. People live out there off House Seaman, Old Plank Road, off Otis Road. They could care less. They've been hearing it their whole life. It's like the person who lives near the train station. They've been hearing it their whole life. It's like people who live up north on pig farms. Am I talking to anybody yet? Go to a pig farm up north. Go to any farm. Go to a chicken farm. Ha! Ah, you realize there's somebody who lives in that chicken farm? And I've said something to these farmers before. I mean, I don't know how you deal with that smell. Smell like money to me, son. 
No, I've smelled money, sir. That's not money. That's something totally different. It might all come out of your back pocket, but it, that ain't money. I promise you that. It doesn't phase them. Why doesn't it phase them? Because they've been around it so long, they stop paying attention to it. They stop making it a deal. They ignored it, and now they don't even notice it. And that's what happens to Christians. The Bible talks about it's like having your heart waxed over till it becomes unprickable. You put enough coats of wax on anything, you can't scratch it. Go look at some of these tables in barbecue restaurants. Got an inch of shellac on them. You're not going to scratch that wood, not unless you really come at it. And for some people in church, every time the doors are open, it's been so long since they really listened to the conviction of God. Nothing pricks their heart anymore. They used to be sensitive to sin. They used to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost. They used to be sensitive to other Christians. Like James talking about, I hear people singing, and it just blesses me and, and tears me up. That, that's, that's a sensitive heart. That's, that's how you used to be if you were saved. That's how you used to be or how you should be if you were close to God. Sensitive, convictable, prickable. Why? Because you've stripped away all of the junk from your heart, and you bear your chest to God. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us. But people that ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, it just becomes second nature to you. You don't even hear that buzzer going off at McDonald's. And you need to check to see how obvious is it to you when you do wrong? Does it get you? Do you still hear, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing it. This is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. God said this first thing he requires of us. Who are us? Christians. People who are already saved. His children. Not the world. Not unsaved people. This isn't a formula for salvation. This is what God requires of people who claim his name. To do what is right. That's enough theology for you to live on the rest of your life. Stop wanting something new. Stop wanting to learn more about God. Stop trying to figure out hard doctrines that you don't know about. Stop getting stuck in the book of the Revelation, the book of Acts, the book of Daniel, and the book of Ezekiel. Stop trying to find out something that you, you, that you just think is cool and see if you're doing what's right. You've got to do first things first. In baseball, I played baseball my whole life. Kids want to hit. That's what they want to do. They don't want to do drills. They want to hit. When I put my kids in martial arts, they wanted to spar. That's all they wanted to do. They wanted to spar. They didn't want to go through the first hour of class before they got to gear up and spar. They want, now, y'all can blame the West. It cost me a whole bunch of money over there at Karate America because they put Malachi in. And then my kids decided, well, if Malachi is doing it, we want to do it. And, you know, this is a whole long story. But anyway, um, so they had to go follow their little buddy over to Karate America at AATA. Y'all remember them days? AATA. Mr. What's his name? What was his name? Roderick. And the thing they loved most about it was the sparring. They didn't want to go through all the drills. Do you realize that the best baseball players in the world still do uh, soft toss and long toss? Do you realize that the best MMA fighters in the world still go through the drills? you got to do the fundamental things before you can do the phenomenal things. And if you haven't perfected the fundamentals, it's not time to move on to the phenomenal. God expects us to do what is right. What's God expect us to do? 
Second thing, he said to love mercy. I don't have time to continue this. The average preacher would make four-week series out of this. But to love mercy. Are you grateful for the mercy? See, mercy is when you don't get what you got coming to you. That's what mercy is. You throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You know you're guilty. You know you ought to get smacked down. You know you ought to get about 12 years for what you've done. You throw yourself on the mercy of the court and say, Your Honor, I did it, and I was a fool, and I am sorry. And if you will give me a chance to do better, I would devote my life to doing better. And the judge has the opportunity to give you mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is when you don't get what you have coming to you. My kids ask for mercy every time I tell them to go in my room and lean over that bed. They ask for mercy because they know what they got coming. They got a black leather belt coming. They'd rather have mercy, and sometimes they get it. And, and sometimes they, they don't. God has the opportunity to give us mercy. God gave us mercy at the cross. God gives us mercy every day. The Bible says mercy is new every day. You know, God gives you a clean slate anytime you want it. You don't even have to wait till tomorrow to get new mercy. Anytime you want it, you get a clean slate. God says you ought to love mercy. You know, if you fall in love with mercy for you, you'll stop expecting perfection out of others. If you fall in love with the concept of how merciful God has been to you, you'll start being more merciful to other people. You fall in love with the concept of mercy, you'll realize that I'm no better than anybody else. We all need God's mercy. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, I wouldn't be saved, and I wouldn't be doing any good thing that I'm doing. So how can I feel like I'm any better than anybody else? you got to fall in love with mercy. People don't care about mercy. And the heartbreaking thing about that to God is he knows what mercy cost him. It cost him separation from his son. It cost him the life of Christ. The price of mercy was paid at Calvary. So God could choose to say, I'll count what Jesus did for you. Because the payment for sin is death. And all sin must be paid for. We get the cho- Everybody has the choice. You can either pay for your own sins by being separated from God forever. Or you can accept the payment Jesus made for your sin on the cross at Calvary when he was separated from God. That's the choice. You either pay your own deal or you accept mercy. And when you're cold on God and you're tired of living right, you have not remembered mercy. And you're not in love with mercy. You're not thankful for mercy. You're not glad that you have mercy in your own life, and you certainly aren't extending any to anybody else. You start finding yourself becoming negative. You start finding yourself becoming critical. You start finding yourself becoming prejudiced. You start finding yourself becoming high-minded. You start finding yourself talking bad about other people and not about yourself. You need to realize you've lost love for mercy. Because when you rightly understand mercy and you fall in love with the mercy God's given to you, you'll want it for everybody. See, good Christians don't want anybody to go to hell. Bad Christians want to see somebody get, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. They don't love mercy. They don't understand mercy. God says you got to do what's right. you got to love mercy. And the last one, he says, and to walk humbly with your God. See, we talk about God. That's ideology. But when we talk about your God, that's personal. You can talk about God, and that can be anybody. But when you talk about your God, that's specific. God is a concept. Lots of things parade around as God. But when we talk about your God, 
you've got one thing in mind if you're truly born again. And the only real God there is is the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible makes this clear. There are not many gods. All other gods are false gods, idols, which means no gods. They're non-gods. The sun god is a no god. The moon god is a no god. Allah is a no god. Confucius is a no god. Buddha is a no god. These are not gods. There's only one real God, and if he's your God, then that's personal to you. When God starts being distant to you, you're not going to do these other two things. You're not going to do what's right. You're not going to love mercy because you've forgotten he's your God. If you love your dad, see, my kids still do it, and they're going to quit one day. I'm going to rejoice until they quit, though. My kids, every time I walk in the door, they still get up off the couch and they run and get me in the hallway before I can get down the hallway leading in, in, into my house. And they hug me. And we've got little cute things that we say to each other on greetings. And that, that happens every time I come in. They're happy to see me. And because I'm their dad. Now, they'd be happy to see Deacon West come over. They love Deacon West. But he, he's, he's their friend's dad. But I'm their dad different ball game is God your God if he is you should feel close to him you should feel connected to him you should feel a longing for him when that stops happening you can't do what's right you can't love mercy because you've gotten away from all that before you can ever expect to walk humbly with your God you've got to focus on the fact that he's yours Did you know out of all the people in the world God picked you you know, out of, all, out of all the religions in the world, God lets you find the right one? You know, out of all the false religions in the world, we could have all been born to Muslim parents, raised in Pakistan, and been taught Islam. And chances are we'd believe what mom and daddy taught us. We were born here, and it made accepting Christianity easier for us. And out of all the religions in the world, God chose to let us find the right one. If he's your God, you ought to be thankful for that. And it ought to cause a humility in your life that understands, I didn't do this for me. I didn't find this on my own, and I didn't pave my own road. I didn't pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I didn't make my way in life. God did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And if he's your God, you should be humble about that. If he's your God, you should walk with him in humility about that, and you should love his mercy, and that will cause you to do what's right. What does God require out of us? The most famous verse in this book of the month is this verse 8. It's the most preached about verse in the book of Micah. It's the most written about verse in the book of Micah. It's what God, one of the most written about verses in the Old Testament. What does God require of me? He requires that I do right. He requires that I love mercy. And he requires that I walk humbly with my God. I hope you get a my God mindset. I hope he's that personal to you. Because when he is, humility and love for mercy and doing the right thing become a whole lot easier than when you don't think right. we got to get our mind right so we can think right. And that's going to help us to do right. And God requires us to do right. Let's pray. God, thank you for being kind enough to tell us what you require. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark and causing us to guess what we must do to make you happy. Thank you for being our God. 
Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for giving us mercy. Please help us to love mercy. Thank you for giving us a book that tells us how to do right. Thank you for giving us a spirit that constrains us and compels us to do right. God, I pray that you'd help us to do right, help us to love mercy, and help us to walk humbly with our God. You've said this is what you require, God. We want to please you. We want to love you. We want you to be proud of us. So help us, God, to put you above our own desires. Help us to put your will above our will, even as Jesus said to you in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will. Help us, God, to be Christ-like in that area where we would be more concerned with your will instead of our will. And I ask you, God, to have your will done in my life, in this church, and in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We truly appreciate the opportunity to pour into your lives each week. For more information or to donate to Abundant Life's ministry, please check out our website at www.alcfnow.org. Until next time, we pray that you will live abundantly.